That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original pieces on our website. Sign up for SupChina Access and you get all that and much more with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism, to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, by some estimates over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. Today on the show, we bring you a fascinating discussion recorded at the China Institute in New York City on September 17th. The eminent scholars Ezra Vogel of Harvard University, author of that magisterial tome on the life of Deng Xiaoping, and Orville Schell, Arthur Ross director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations, tackle a big question. Is China the enemy? Their conversation is moderated by Joe Kahn, managing editor of the New York Times, who spent many years in China himself in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Special thanks to Dinda Elliott of the China Institute for helping to make this happen, and thanks to Juliana Batista, the wonderful host of our podcast, Ta for Ta, the show about women in and around China at the top of their professional game, for helping out with the recording. Enjoy the show, and I'll be back next week with a conversation with Jude Blanchett, all about the situation in Hong Kong. So thank you everyone for joining us. We're just going to kick off the conversation. You all know the topic of tonight's discussion, is China the enemy? And um, I actually thought we could consult an expert on this, an expert who's not on this panel, but is in all of our lives every day, the President of the United States, President Trump, uh, and have him help us frame the question for us. Because on August 14th, this is uh, what we at the New York Times do. We read the tweets from the President of the United States. On August 14th, he tweeted, I know President Xi of China very well. He is a great leader who very much has the respect of his own people. He is also a good man and a tough business. I have zero doubt that President Xi wants to quickly and humanely solve the Hong Kong problem, and he can do it. Personal meeting? Then, exactly nine days later, he was discussing some problems, both with the trade talks with China and with the Federal Reserve of the United States. And he tweeted... My only question is, who is our bigger enemy, Jay Powell or Chairman Xi? 
So we are going to try to explore which of those two uh, approaches by President Trump feels like it has uh, more resonance these days. And I thought we could start uh, on my far right with Orville Schell, partly because he just returned from China, where he was invited by the foreign ministry uh, to discuss the state of the relationship and the and the and the sense of rising tensions on both sides. So, Orville, maybe you could kick us off just by talking about your trip there and some of your uh, reflections on the state of the relationship. Well, I think we'd have to say that you know, if you look at the sort of the sweep of the last ten or twenty years, the relationship is probably at a relatively low ebb and teetering in ways it's hard to t exactly say which way it will go. Um, my feeling about being there this time is that there is, is starting to be a whole host of uncertainty sort of gathering over the Chinese leadership. And I think that's partially caused by, by President Trump, uh, who in, in, in all, uh, I think, deference to him, did recognize that the relationship was out of balance and did need to be adjusted if it was going to be successful and endure. And uh, I think that is, that is a kind of essentially a, a paradigm shift, if you will. And the sense I get in China is that they have, at this particular moment, with the public dialogue so stilled, there is a, a rather diminished ability to talk to themselves, to hear themselves, and to hear criticisms and to try to formulate a new way out. I think there is an actual desire and will to do that now, recognizing that things are, as I said, teetering. So I think that that, that is my predominant in question. They're, they, they recognize it's not just the U.S.-China relationship, but the China's posture in the world, too, is calling a lot of questions uh, to the fore, and they're not quite sure how to, how to deal with that. And uh, that's probably a healthy thing, but I also would have to say that in all the years I've been going to China, and I first went in 1975, I have rarely seen a time when there are few sort of ruminative voices in the public sphere. And I think that's, that's, uh, that is quite a disadvantage. Does China have a policy now to manage the signals of a stronger or a harder line American policy, or do you think they're still struggling to find? Well, this is something we may want to talk about in a little greater detail. I think the, the conceit of the last few decades was engagement, and that presupposed that the U.S. and China, even though very different, were slowly converging in, in crucial ways. And I think one of the things that's happened in the last few years is, pe is many people in this country now think we're diverging. So this makes it very difficult for us to know uh, how to, to exactly deport ourselves in, in, in relationship to each other. And I think we're, we're struggling to find a new balance, even at the same time that I think China recognizes that, that, that something has to be done, or this, this, this ship could go down. Ezra, let me turn to you. You uh, are one of the lead authors on uh, an influential op-ed that appeared not too long ago in the in in the Washington Post and which is not to hold anything against it and and the title was China is not an enemy tell us a little bit about why uh, you were involved with that effort and what your 
most important takeaways from that. <clears throat> In the last couple of years, the Washington mood has grown so anti-Chinese, and the politicians are all jumping on China, and the people who want to serve in the future administrations are joining the bandwagon. And so there is just a terrible mood, and the Chinese know it. And a lot of people in China who are friendly with the West and open-minded uh, feel that uh, America is treating them like an enemy. And if we treat them like an enemy, that gives strength to the people who are ultra patriotic in China. And we can become more enemies, and that's scary. A lot of us uh, who work on China uh, immediately responded, that's not right, and there's not a consensus, it's not united. But we were not organized, we didn't know quite how to go about that. And so a lot of us began discussing the exchanging emails. And in the end, uh, five of us uh, two former uh, diplomats, State Roy, who was one of our great ambassadors, uh, grew up in Nanjing, uh, graduated Princeton, advises Kissinger. When Kissinger wants to know what's going on in China, he calls David Roy on the phone. And uh, he served as ambassador for several years and then back in, in Washington. Uh, so he was one of those. Uh, another uh, was uh, an academic uh, Taylor Fravel, who has just written what I think is the best work uh, on Chinese military strategy. He's been working on that for many years. He's a professor at MIT. Another is Mike Swain, uh, who has uh, been working uh, for another uh, 40, maybe 40 years on China's work in defense, and he's a key think tank, Carnegie in Washington. Uh, and uh, then uh, there was a woman who worked in the State Department uh, and uh, just resigned. And uh, she also uh, joined in. Uh, she was in charge of the uh, China Bureau, uh, the uh, East Asia Bureau at the State Department, although she never was fully confirmed. Uh, and she finally couldn't take it and retired. And, and I as representing an academic. So we feel that, that uh, we wanted to make the point that not all of Washington is united, and certainly not all of United, the United States treats China as enemy, that China is strong. There are a lot of things we don't like. The term I would like to use is rival. They are a rival. And uh, they're an economic rival. They're a political rival. Uh, they're an ideological rival. And we do need to rival, but we need to keep it in bounds. Uh, we in Boston think of the Red Sox as our team. Uh, and we, uh, you people are New Yorkers, and you probably think of Yankees and other teams as your team. Uh, we, we can play sports, but it's within a league, and it's within boundaries. And if, you, if the Yankees get better, then it, it prods, us, uh, prods us to try to behave better and to do better. That's the kind of rivalry we need, but it's, it needs to be bounded, not by this all-out unpredictable uh, antagonism, which could really lead to conflict. Mm -hmm. Uh, Orville, you were involved in uh, another recent effort, a comprehensive effort, to look at the range of Chinese influence, uh, soft power, if you will, uh, in the United States and in, in other Western countries, looking at 
the spread of Chinese influence or attempts to influence into academia, think tanks, uh, into you know making friends with politicians uh, and business community as well. And uh, among your conclusions was that the rest of the world needed to be far more vigilant uh, to China. In that sense, and that was a Hudson Institute report. Was that, do you? come away from that effort believing that the rhetoric that China may be an enemy is more harmful or perhaps more helpful to at least increasing vigilance? I mean, how do you, how do you reflect on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the word enemy is, is, is not the right word because it, it presupposes that it's sort of the end of the game. There, there's nothing to be done. Um, I think we've gotten to this state where this, this is even arising. It's almost like watching a Greek tragedy unfold, you know, where you can see what's happening, where the leaders can't rise to the occasion. There's a certain amount of overweening arrogance and ambition on each side, and you just head towards the cliff and over you go. And I think the, the, the I, I've just spent the summer looking through the last seven presidential administrations and in their policies towards China. And one of the things that's really impressed me about it is that every single president since Nixon, American president, uh, has leaned over backwards to make this relationship work. Now, Clinton came in talking about the butchers from Beijing to Baghdad, but he went out with pulling China into the WTO and, 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 and giving them a permanent most favored nation standing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you look at this record and you wonder, how did we get to where we are today? And I think actually it was a sort of badly played game uh, by both sides. But uh, uh, here we are, where opportunities were missed to level things out before they got antagonistic. And now they've gotten antagonistic enough where we have this, this situation, Ezra mentions, of the, of a bipartisan sense of China as a rival, a competitor, and possibly an enemy. And that is because this very critical notion that we could engage each other, which is what Kissinger and Nixon, bless their hearts, started in 1972, that we could set things, certain things aside, we could get along with this country that was different politically with different values because there were other compelling reasons. And that's what's been lost. And I'm not sure how we get back to it, uh, particularly under Trump. But I think also here it would be interesting for us to look at the, what each side did and didn't do, which brought us to this impasse. And there's plenty uh, of, 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 of blame to share on both sides. So we'll, we'll have a chance to review uh, a bit of what both of you think uh, might have gone well or might have gone wrong in the past. But let me take you up briefly, if you don't mind, on, on, your, on your reference to a Greek tragedy uh, in one sense, because uh, one of Ezra's uh, colleagues at Harvard, Graham Allison, has referred to the U.S.-China relationship is following, uh, you know, a kind of uh, Greek tragic path, this, this, the Thucydides trap, which was a reference to Athens and Sparta and then to the many great power rivalries that have emerged over the centuries since then and the possibility or even the probability of war breaking out at some point. But Graham Allison's somewhat counterintuitive take is that when two great powers or when an incumbent power facing a rising power 
actually start to think of each other as enemies and game around each other as enemies, the chances of conflict may be reduced because they are very aware of the other threat. That's the Cold War situation and the nuclear paradox. But do you at least acknowledge the possibility that with both sides being far more vigilant about potential threats in the relationship that they were before, that you might avert the worst outcome? Or do you think that by beginning to think of each other as enemies, we actually heighten the possibility of a bad outcome? Can I interrupt one second? Uh, Graham Allison is a friend of mine. And uh, when I talked to him about his idea, I said to him, Graham, you've made it very clear that there's a real danger uh, that we might get in trouble. And you want to, his title of the book did not end in a question mark. It should have ended in a question mark <laughs> because he doesn't really believe, believe that the conflict is inevitable. He really believes that there are a lot of things that can be done to avoid that, and he wants to work to avoid that. Yes. So I just want to defend my colleague. So. <laughs> well, uh, I do. I share your sentiment, Ezra. I mean, I, I think it's not inevitable. But in order to head off what is definitely a bad trend line, it seems to me we need some really good leadership. And I think in different ways, each side is lacking such leadership right now. We all don't need to labor what's going on in America. We all understand that and see it. Uh, and I think China, too, has, uh, you know, it, it, it lacks the kind of flexibility that it once afforded itself. I mean, I think particularly back to the 80s. I mean, I've been on many presidential trips, and I'll never forget the one with Bill Clinton, because you watched him with Jiang Zemin. This was after he came in breathing fire against China. And their body language, their obvious pleasure in interacting with each other was very telling. And they actually, uh, you know, that, that was an amazing time. After 1989, less than a decade had passed, and the U.S. and China did come back together with some modicum of being able to, to, to feel that they could work together. And then you look at what goes on with Xi Jinping. I went on the trip with Trump and Xi Jinping. I mean, there was none of that. Whatever Trump says about their friends is actually good because that means they're not maligning each other and, and trashing each other. But there was no sense of let's, let's fix, let's figure this out together. There's no sense of that leadership could actually break the stranglehold of what has been going on and reset the terms of the game. And I have to say, uh, I think in this regard, to be critical of the Chinese side for a minute, many, many opportunities were missed with very reasonable, sane administrations in Washington begging China to level the playing field. And China didn't respond as I think it could have and would have headed off a lot of what's happening now, which is triply hard to fix under Trump because he's very unpredictable. So, so Ezra, looking, looking back across the, the many years that you've been uh, studying China, speaking with Chinese officials at all stage uh, in their development from the very earliest opening to the West to the, to the present day, do you emerge from the feeling that China is uh, uh, confident that it can and would like to 
replace the United States as the dominant power in the world, or do you think there is still a fundamental ambivalence and question about that, even I, in the minds of the Chinese who you think? I wouldn't say ambivalence, because I think they would like to be stronger. They would like to be the leading country of the world, but I think uncertainty. I, I, I sense that uh, now they... they, they that they really are not sure of what they can do and where they're at. And I think what uh, Orville just found out in Beijing is an example of that uncertainty. And the United States is also uh, not responding in a way that they can really work out problems. It's not just the White House. It's that we're not using our State Department in an effective way. We're not having dis discussions with their, their leaders. It's a, it's a very broad base. Um, 20 years ago, I think nobody believed that China would go this fast. Either in, Even in China, I think they were not confident. But now that they have continued to rise so rapidly that their GNP, if not already bigger, will soon be bigger than ours, that they have more trade with other countries in the world than we do, that they are spending far more on infrastructure around the world than we are, they have already, in some, some ways, already begun to replace the United States. And I think that the United States' reaction is um, serious. You know, we've never been replaced before. And um, I've just gone through studying Japan-China relations. And uh, when China replaced Japan, I would date it from about 2008 to 2012-14, they had an extremely tense period. I think we're now going through a period when China is probably going to be a bigger economy. It already has, as I say, has more trade, more investment around the world, and uh, it's growing political impact around the world. And the United States is not used to that. And we don't know what China is going to be like. And when China builds up its military and when it mistreats its own people in Xinjiang, a lot of people in the West are very frightened that it could be really terrible. My own view is uh, that they're not like the Soviet Union. Uh, they're not like Hitler of wanting to invade other countries. They haven't shown signs of invasion, but they do want to be strong and respected nation that has great influence. But now suddenly they're close to it and they see signs that maybe they aren't there and they're not sure. And they find reaction in Hong Kong, in Washington, in Europe, in Canada, in Australia, around the world. And so I think there's great new uncertainty. Well, let me, you, you raised the comparison of Japan, and, and you were uh, very focused on Japan in the, in the late 70s and the, and the 80s, when Japan was also seen by some in the United States as an emerging rival and potentially even in some circles seen as an enemy. How similar do you think the two situations are? Japan in the 80s and China in the second decade of the 21st century. I think people who grew up after the 80s don't realize how tense the relationship was in the 80s with Japan. Uh, there were books written about uh, Japan uh, as the enemy, and there was real fear that they were going to overtake us industrially. But uh, this situation now is much worse and much more widespread than it was with Japan. Uh, first of all, Japan at that time was our military ally. 
and the people who wanted to keep the alliance against the Soviet Union right up until the early 90s uh, were ready to work with Japan against the Soviet Union. And also, Japan did not have 1.4 million people, and it did not have the tremendous stretch of people around the world. And after World War II, I think Japan lost that uh, drive to really dominate the world. I think the experience in the 1930s of feeling so confident they could do so much, and then came disaster. I think Japan, uh, in spirit, uh, was still wounded by that. But I think China now uh, feels, you know, they were an ancient great power. Uh, they were not a world power, they were the Asia power. Uh, but they see now what they can do and the speed of their growth and the size of uh, their uh, intellectual group, the size of the universities, the, the growth of their people around the world. And I think there is a greater ambition and a greater stretch, and it will go much further. When the crash came in Japan in 1989, that was the end, and by three years later, almost nobody was worried about Japan. Right. But it's hard to imagine that that will happen with China. It, it could run into a lot of problems, but it still has so much economic power and military power that Japan in the 80s did not have. So, Oral, let me ask you about one aspect of that power, which is that some people in China anyway, and, and perhaps some others around the world, but this is the basis of the, of the question, see that China actually has a fairly comprehensive model or alternative to American hegemony and the American system of free markets and democracy and human rights. And it crosses into the political realm, cultural, economic, social, a way of organizing society. Do you see the potential, maybe even regardless of how the relationship is managed, that you'll see the world begin to diverge into those who prefer the Chinese authoritarian model versus those who see America as, as the world leader? You know, that's a really interesting question, Joe, and I think that it, that there's a, it's the crux of, of part of what we're talking about. Because they haven't actually declared themselves as a model. But there's a word in Chinese that's been used, the Zhongguo Fang'an, the China, what, solution, option, something of that notion. And I think, why that's particularly significant is because if you begin to look at China as an alternative system and an alternative universe, then you have to also look at what is it all about? What's its political structure? What's its value structure? How does it operate? Is this the kind of thing that uh, you feel comfortable with having elaborated and spread around the world? And I think that with that sort of hint, maybe that China had arrived at some sort of an alternative way to be in the world, wasn't just in transition towards a nice, liberal, more democratic, open society model somewhere in the future, uh, that got particularly alarming to people. And so here, the critical element, I think, in our relationship with China and why domestic politics in China really matter is that if you lose the element of political reform, which China basically has, you lose that capacity to believe that it's evolving towards some more congenial 
digestible, absorbable model that would converge with with what we accept as sort of the should be the norm, whether that's right or not is another question. So that that's a really important question. You lose reform, you actually lose the logic of engagement. Because what does engagement presuppose? It presupposes that we're different, but we're going to slowly come together if we just keep up the, the interaction. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ezra, I, you've mentioned, both of you in fact mentioned the leadership question and, and uh, one of your uh, uh, lifetime achievements is, is the definitive biography of Deng Xiaoping, uh, who was obviously instrumental in taking China decisively in a new direction in the late 1970s and through the 80s. Uh, we now have a very different Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, who arguably is the most powerful leader since Deng, or some say the most powerful leader since Mao. Um, how do you reflect on his ability to take China in a fundamentally different direction. Do you think he has the leeway to do that the way Deng Xiaoping did back in the 80s? I don't see him as the most powerful leader, and I don't see him as more powerful than Deng. Deng came to power after a lifetime studying and working and full of experiences. He spent five years in France. He spent one year in the Soviet Union. He spent three years running the Southwest just at the time. It was... Uh, establishing power throughout the country with about 100 million people under him. He served 10 years in Beijing as a general party secretary. He was a, a one of the leading uh, people in the army for 12 years, and in the end, in the Huai Hai uh, campaign, he ended as the political commissar for half a million troops. He was a military hero. So, And he worked closely with Mao and uh, closely with Joe and Lai, the last two years of Joe and Lai's death, when he had cancer, he really put uh, Deng Xiaoping in charge of foreign policy, and they worked very closely together. So Deng had an amazing breadth, and uh, as I say, uh, the experience in Beijing of ten years running the party when he had come, and he was also in charge of economic matters as well. So. Uh, here is Xi Jinping. It's true that he comes from a well-known family, but he never worked in Beijing. He was not in the. He had no important role in the army. He had no experience in running things. He hasn't lived abroad. He didn't know had experience working in foreign policy. He's a guy who worked in the province. He lived in the Cultural Revolution. He didn't have good university training either because. He went to schools during the, the Cultural Revolution. He was down in the countryside. So he comes to Beijing. And unlike Deng Xiaoping, who could uh, be a uh, relaxed uh, person in charge, spend the morning uh, reading papers, and in the evenings he could watch television and play with his grandkids, Xi Jinping has to grab everything into his own self. 
So what you see is leading groups under Xi Jinping. So to people who don't know the background and context, it looks as if Xi Jinping is very strong because they head of this leading group and head of that group. And he has replaced a lot of the people who were in Beijing with people who worked under him in Fujian or Hebei or someplace else. So they're uh, indebted to him. They have to look to him. So they uh, do look to him and their power depends on serving Xi Jinping. So he has a tight uh, group on that small, but that's not the, the breadth and depth of Deng Xiaoping, who could, and who had a very broad strategic sense. I remember when I talked to Li Guan Yu about Deng, uh, and uh, I said, he, Deng came to Singapore with his foreign ministry people. He must have taken their advice. He said, oh no, they looked at Deng Xiaoping. He knew more about foreign policy than they did. Xi Jinping is not that way. He, he looks strong, he acts strong, he's in charge of a lot of leading groups, but that does not give him the breadth and depth of strength that Deng had. So is the, is the corollary of that then that he also doesn't have the leeway or the, or the ability to make a really decisive shift in direction uh, on the Chinese side with, in other words, that he would need to build a much broader leadership consensus uh, compared to the way Deng Xiaoping operated in those days? I don't think he could make a strong different, uh, decision that is different from what others felt. Um, he, I think there was a decision at the time he was selected to be the head, that China needs a more forceful leader uh, rather than who, uh, Jiang Zemin and, and Hu Jintao, uh, because they really needed to crack down on corruption. They really needed to be tough, and he was prepared to be tough. So he was given a certain leeway to be, be tough, and to crack down. But I don't think that gives him the leeway to give a, a whole new direction to policy. You know, China is a huge bureaucracy. They have a lot of talented people who have a lot of experience and know-how. Uh, Mao Zedong, you know, was, was above the clouds. Deng Xiaoping could do things. But Xi Jinping is a later leader. He, he doesn't have that independent leeway. And uh, to me, he looks like somebody who's acting tough and strong, uh, but doesn't have as firm and a solid base as uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, had in the Or well, let me let me see if I can get you to take up uh, how that a similar question looks on the U.S. side. Um, we have a a president who declares himself to be a stable genius and in command of all the. <laughs> levers of power, do you think he has the ability to significantly shift the tone in U.S.-China relations, or do you think that there is more of a tectonic shift occurring here in the United States that may, would make it harder for him to do that than, you know, than, than a single declaration might, might suggest? I mean, I think that the, the tragedy of our situation here in America is that Trump has that kind of animal instinct that smelled out the inequity in our relationship with China, the lack of reciprocity, the imbalances, all of these things you know about. But he has almost no capacity then, having gotten the attention of the Chinese leadership, which I think he most emphatically has done, of converting that into any constructive new format. And what the relationship now needs, in my view, 
It needs a post-engagement engagement strategy. But this isn't Trump's thing. And he's got a lot of people in the White House who, who are, they're loaded for bear and, and decoupling the relationship. So if that's where you're headed, then it's very hard to want to fix it. And then, you know, you have what Ezra just said about uh, Xi Jinping, that he, he just isn't the kind of guy who just smiles and says, come on, we can fix this. Let's, let's get to work here. I think he's very cautious. He, he really wants to appear to be sort of the strong leader, but I'm not sure he has that kind of uh, self-confidence that would allow him to... I mean, Deng was amazing, uh, actually, and if he hadn't gotten laid low by 1989, I actually think China would be a very, very different place. Mm. Ezra, you were going to jump in. I, I was going to... I agree so much with Orville that I, I hesitate to find differences. I'm trying to get you. <laughs> but but uh, one, you said post-engagement. Yeah. Uh, I don't... I, I think the engagement strategy was much more successful than most people do. I agree, but I still think we're heading over the edge. Uh, I, I think it was the right thing to do, and I think it showed great leadership on the American side. I even think when President Bush I sent Scowcroft to Beijing after the Beijing massacre and got soundly criticized, by myself included, looking back on it now... He was he, right. He was right. He was right. You, that's what leadership does. It keeps tension on the line, even when, when things are getting really rough. But I don't think right now uh, it's going to be very easy to right the ship. I agree with that. But I, I just wanted to defend what engagement accomplished. Well, you can't, you can't make me into an enemy there. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't even make you into a rival for that. Uh, but uh, I think it's, it's true that the, the amount of contacts, the number of people in China who have a broad uh, view of the world mm. and who are cosmopolitan and want to work with others is much greater. One thing I disagreed with that article that uh, Kurt Campbell and Ratner wrote uh, was they said it didn't work and that uh, we needed... It, it changed things enormously. And uh, we need to continuously engage things. The, the world is now so intertwined. To think we can deal with the world's climate issues or the world's trade structure or the, uh, the United Nations structure without China, without coming to some kind of fundamental agreement with them, it, it's impossible. And we, we have to continue to be engaged. Maybe you don't disagree. No, I don't disagree. I think engagement was right but I think for reasons we've been discussing, it's not worked. And so the question is, how do we okay, there we do disagree. into it? I do disagree, because I think it did work. Oh, no, I there, think it worked in the past. I think it's not working for us now. We, well. we need, you know, China is stronger. They're more assertive. Mm -hmm. uh, they've done things the way they've treated American businessmen, the way they've uh, treated journalists. Uh, we, need, we need to be firm, and we need to defend... Uh, our, ourselves from spying and uh, without making things so difficult for Chinese students. And it's a very difficult thing I think we're facing now. How is an American dem democracy that's open, we deal with a country uh, that makes it difficult and takes advantage without being fully reciprocal. Mm -hmm. And it, it's going to be a very difficult thing that we're going to have to 
continue working. Let me challenge you both on one on one question related to the legacy of engagement, um, which is picking up on something that Orville said. Do you do you believe that the engagement strategy, as it was pursued from the '80s and the '90s, really really through the first decade of the 21st century, was at least partly based on an American assumption that there would be a degree of convergence between the United States and China, a degree of economic convergence, and ultimately political openness, if not total convergence. That engagement was based at least on an optimistic view that the two civilizations were not fundamentally different. And that as it became clearer, to both sides really, that they were on a more separate course, and uh, Orville, you referred to a decoupled course, that engagement just became much harder politically to defend on either side. How, how do you respond to that? I, I think that there was some optimism and perhaps some over-optimism, but I, I think that most of us who worked on China didn't expect that China would end up being exactly like the United States, to be somewhat different. Uh, but I think China has changed, and I think this is not today is not the end of history. Uh, to say that China now has gone back and has had tight control over freedom of speech, do we think that will last forever? Unfortunately, I won't live to see a full blossoming maybe 10, 20, 30 years from now. But I, but I do believe that uh, there are many Chinese who are not happy with being... Uh, having such tight control over information in China. When you have one and a half million Chinese abroad as students, when you have eight million Chinese visiting Japan every year, and when they go abroad to different countries, they can get full information. How are you going to have tight control over information? In wartime, in a previous year before internet and before uh, interaction and travel, it might be possible to have tight control. But I think what China is trying to do with tight control now is not the end of history. And uh, maybe I'm an old-fashioned optimist, but I, but I see a lot of Chinese who are not happy with that and who are getting a lot of information outside of the regular channels. And I don't think that's going to go away. And I don't think that China can forever have the tight control over information they're trying to do right now. Oral, how do you feel about that question? Was there is there a needed sense of optimism in order for the for the two sides to re-engage? You know, I I share uh, Ezra's sort of cautionary word that we forget we are in a flow of history, and we've all been watching this relationship and country for a long time, and it's it's the, the openness factors have waxed and they've waned, and they will continue to do so. So we are not at the end of anything. And one of the sort of most striking impressions of this past trip was in talking to friends and colleagues and officials, I mean, I, I don't think there was a single one with whom we met privately who is particularly enamored of what's going on in the policy world. They're far too sophisticated, smart, cosmopolitan to, to, to feel comfortable with that. Now, that, that's a kind of a strange discontinuity between top and bottom, but look at our own country. I mean, if you're, I mean, we, we have a similar phenomenon of a different kind. I do think that, in answer to your question, Joe, that, I mean, just remembering back to the 1980s, I mean, which was an extraordinary period, you remember. Uh, we were all in and out of China then. 
it, there was a, a, a presumption amongst a lot of Chinese that reform was the elixir that was going to transform this country not only into being more wealthy and powerful and proud of itself, but also was going to politically change it. And you remember all of the projects. They asked President Jimmy Carter to come in and launch a whole project on village elections. And then when Xi Jinping came to power, they asked him kindly to stop it. So, I mean, right there you had a kind of a sense. So it wasn't sheer naivete on the part of us who, with our Hegelian dreams of the end of history and Fukuyama land as the ultimate paradise to which we were all evolving. I think there was an actual belief that China was changing in China itself. And that was a good thing, and it engendered a great deal of optimism in the relationship. Yeah. Um, we're going to open it up to questions from you all shortly, but, but let me just turn to one thing that's been very much in the news recently that, that, that goes to that point, which is the, the situation in Hong Kong today and, and the extended protests on the street in Hong Kong. And it does seem that many of the young people who have turned out for these protests are caught uh, in the midst of a similar ambiguous question about whether they feel a tight enough bond to mainland China or whether they're searching for a different identity uh, outside of Xi Jinping's definition of what it means to be Chinese. Uh, and it's exactly 30 years ago uh, that a group of students led by students in Beijing uh, were going through a similar dilemma. Do you see parallels between those and, and how do you both feel about uh, the, the, the challenge to China posed by the students on the street in Hong Kong, students and young workers and others. You want to go first? Go ahead. I think that the Hong Kong is such a tragedy. Those of us who go to Hong Kong often feel it's such a tragedy that so many talented people uh, feel that they can't put up with the future of the mainland. And um, the leaders in Beijing cannot be too open with Hong Kong because if they do, then they will be facing demands for action inside China. As Chinese leaders look at what happened in Russia, it fell apart. Eastern Europe fell apart. And if it fell apart sometimes when they were being too generous and too open. So it's understandable why some leaders feel that under threat or under uh, strain, you have to clamp down and keep tight control. I think a lot of people in China can accept that, that that when you got one four four billion people of such diverse background, I mean, Europe can't even hold together. They can't even keep Britain and maybe Spain can't even hold together. Uh, so uh, how 1.4 billion? And um, I think that the people in Hong Kong are <clears throat> feeling that they don't want that future. They, they, they like what they have. They have a freedom and an openness, and they would like to preserve that. Unfortunately, it, uh, the 50-year the is coming pretty fast. So uh, the, the people in Hong Kong are, are really terribly uh, worried about their future. But, you know, 50 years, uh, at the end of the two systems agreement, and I think China is just going to try to wait it out. 
and uh, try to avoid. I think China mishandled it. I think there are things that they could have done to give China, uh, Hong Kong more freedom uh, to manage it better and to have more voting. Uh, but um, I think it's going to be a very tough job to put Humpty Dumpty back together again now. Orville, how do you see China getting out of this Hong Kong problem at the moment? Can they get out of it? You know, I remember so clearly uh, being in Hong Kong in 1997 and being on endless panels. And of course, the question came up, does, will one country, two systems work? And at the time, I was very skeptical because the value systems were so different. The structures were so different. Everything was different. And yet, it, 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 it went along well enough for a fair amount of time. And I think it began to unravel when China began to nibble away at those sort of... The, 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 yes, there was some lack of clarity about whether they'd allow uh, you know, elections for the Legislative Council to be popular or continue the system they have now. But I think that was a fatal mistake. Because if they just left it alone, nobody would have noticed. Hong Kong would have gone on. But remember that the presumption behind the handover when Britain signed the agreement with China in 1984 and then turned Hong Kong over in 1997, the reason why people thought 50 years was good enough because almost everybody believed that by 50 years' time, China would have changed so radically that Hong Kong wouldn't, would just love to be part of it. And th that also was the great hope among many of us, I think, for Taiwan. That just don't fight. Just leave it be until China reforms and changes, and then Taiwan will naturally find that its economic interest makes it uh, uh, logical to join up. And that's where I think the whole political reversal in the last five, six years or so has cast a different shadow on Hong Kong and on Taiwan. So on that note, let's see what... Um uh, colleagues in the audience, uh, what's on your mind? We're happy to, Dindu, should we pass around a microphone or people are just going to, okay. So there's one right here on the right. We can start with you, sir. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Tao. I'm a freelance interpreter. Uh, the, the impression that I get reading the press is that during this past, these past few years, when there have been rising tensions, between the US and China. That seems to have driven China and Russia closer together than before. To some extent, they're building on an old relationship which didn't work out, but there seems to be some kind of a revival. Economic, commercial, investment, and military cooperation is growing apace. And watching Chinese TV, I get the impression that um, they are still grateful to the Russians for their assistance on cultural issues like music, ballet, and art, and literature. How should we as Americans be viewing this trend? Um, should we be worried? Is there some way we can benefit from this? In the UN Security Council, the Russian and the Chinese almost always vote together. How, how should we be tackling this? Please. Um, I think Russia and China have plenty of problems, 
And of course, now the situation is so different from the Sino-Soviet alliance. In the days of the Sino-Soviet alliance, it was the Soviet Union that was strong, and Japan was studying from the Soviet. Uh, China was. Uh, somebody works on China and Japan. Both of you. Uh, uh, China and uh, the Soviet Union, uh, you know, had a really big quarrel, and I don't think the results of that quarrel have dissipated entirely. But it's also true that even after they split. Uh, that old Soviets, so you could go to a Chinese park in Beijing and on Sunday and hear a lot of people singing old Soviet songs, uh, that, that remember the good old days. I think that, that culture from the Soviet Union didn't go away. Uh, and, uh, I think now the Soviet Union, frankly, in most areas is not a major player. And I think that the United States and China have plenty to worry about. And I wouldn't put the Sino-Soviet cooperation as high on that list to worry about. I'll just say quickly two things. One, isn't it a great paradox that the great experiment in U.S.-China engagement began in 1972 as an anti-Soviet enterprise? And now here we are with the Sino-Soviet alliance reviving. Second thing I'd say is this. I think what actually ties China together, and believe me, Chinese, they, they call the Russians, you know, Lao Maoza, not very flattering. They, they, they don't really like the Russians, and the Russians don't really like the Chinese. So it's a marriage opportunity, and I think they're bound together by a sense of grievance. They both feel that the West or the great powers, whatever is out there, is trying to strip their empires, break them up, uh, engage in regime change, disesteems their governments, looks down on their, 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 their value systems, and I think it's very galling to them. And I think that gives them a certain fraternal relationship. Other questions? Here, sir. Uh, second round. Yeah, Peter Walker. Um, I'm a retired McKinsey director. I've made maybe 80 to 90 trips to China over the last 15 years. So I, I like to put out a hypothesis. Um, one is that the Chinese governments have always served with the support of the people. And whenever they've lost that support, there's been regime change, never model change, going back for many years. So so my, my question is, does... China really need to do anything differently from the path they're on. So if you look at the strength of their economy, which is increasingly driven by a growing middle class, um, if you look at their position vis-a-vis -vis technology, where they're investing far more than we are in a very coordinated way, and if you look at their engagement with the rest of the world, um, Africa, developing countries, increasingly Europe, does China need the U.S. going forward? Who wants to take that one? I, I think it's true that uh, the Chinese have been very successful in technology and international relations uh, and uh, building. I think the Belt and Road has been uh, much more successful and that we should have joined it. I think that the Asia Infrastructure uh, investment bank is something we should have joined in the, in the early part and worked. But I think that still China has to worry about slowing growth rate. And if you look what happened in Japan and South Korea and uh, 
Other countries, they grew very fast, the late industrializing countries, when they built infrastructure and steel. And when that began to slow down, the growth rate begins to go down. And there are so many uh, unmet needs in China. I think the Chinese leadership is very worried about all the things that, that can happen. And there, there are a lot of people who want more democracy, more discussion. Uh, it's true that they can do much better than we can with infrastructure. Uh, and they can build better, ro- better roads, better subways, uh, better highways, uh, better fast speed trains. Uh, but still, I think there's a longing for greater discussion. I was quite surprised that we at Harvard and other American universities have not had a big drop-off in applicants from China this year. They are as confident as Chinese are about things. They still want to come to the United States to study, and not a, not a small number uh, would like to live here. So I, I think that there, there are a lot of problems in China. <laughs> you know, I think in answer to your question, do they need us? Well, China in this incarnation has had a long history of autarky and total independence from the West and from the United States, and it can do it. And people are just taking their belts. But it's not an ideal scenario. And the truth is that the relationship with the United States through engagement was an incredible asset for China, and it enabled China to to join the global marketplace. And I think America, in all fairness, played a very constructive role in that. I mean, there are some slips, yes. So can they do without it? Well, sure. But the question I ask is, why would they want to? And if you look back at the derailment of our relationship, uh, and there are many reasons we've discussed some of them tonight, you have to ask yourself, how is it conceivably in China's interest to break engagement or to play any role in sort of dismantling engagement when it was so advantageous to China? And I believe it still is. And it would be a sorry world if we turned into adversaries, much less enemies. We were doing reasonably well. It was We were, we were limping along, but we were doing okay. So I think it's a... It is a great failure uh, of both governments that we have put a stake through the heart of engagement. Here, I guess I disagree a little with Ezra. I think you you still hope it has some life in it. I I actually do too, but I don't see a whole lot. And I don't quite know how to get back to it. I think we in the university do see a lot more exchange. And we do see a lot of life in it. And even when we go to China, and uh, we meet friends. Well, you, you were there recently, and you had some good talks with good friends. But I think it's not only that, that the world is so small that China needs us, but we need China now. The idea of decoupling is impossible. I mean, the communication, the intricacies of production networks are now so complex, you can't pull them apart anymore. And even if the governments try, it's not going to work. I mean, there are too many people who can think of ways to something can be done better someplace else, and it's going to happen. And so I, I think we just have to work together to deal with that complexity. There was an, another question just in front here. Yeah, it's right, right here. De-escalating this crisis situation, I think you've been alluding to this, but how, 
constrained do you think both leaders are by their own domestic concerns about what they need to do with the rise of nationalism in both countries and staying coward themselves and restraining them? Well, I think they feel quite constrained. But again, I mean, I don't want to overemphasize sort of big leader culture here, but real leaders lead. They don't just follow. I mean, I was not a supporter of Richard Nixon, but damn, he got in there and changed the game. And that's what Deng Xiaoping did. He didn't didn't say, do I have a, 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 a market here? Do I, should I do a survey? Should I, you know, take a poll? No. He came in with guns blazing and he changed, he turned the whole China super tanker right around. And I think we don't see that now. I mean, Trump has a tiny little piece of it in his pugnaciousness in confronting China, but that's only one piece of this big puzzle. So I, 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 I don't know. I, 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 I look back at the people who made a real difference, and they were people who, 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 who were unrepentant in their belief that it needed to be different, and confident enough in their own ability to, to the devil take the hindmost, they were going to do it. A uh, question here in the front. If you, if you hold, just wait for a mic. Thank you. I'm Sonny Wall from New Jersey, and uh, I'm from the... Uh, uh, Enterprise. Uh, my question is: you know, the world is often divided geopolitically into West and East. But during the G8 summit in, in Paris, the, the president of France says the West side is now facing a challenge; it's going down, while the East part is uh, rising. So, do you think the, the rising of the East, including China? is a major cause of the West getting ill or descending, including the United States. Do you think the civilization clashes will be uh, the true? I don't believe the civilization clashes are the real source of the problem. I, I see so many Chinese who have uh, absorbed so much of Western culture, and uh, I think it's over... Uh, real problems. Uh, it's the real rise of China uh, and, and the power. Uh, I think 20 years ago, you know, maybe McKinsey, the person from McKinsey may have a different view, uh, a lot of Western companies were quite optimistic and uh, would accept giving up some technology. But now that China is so strong, they say, woo, uh, you know, uh, we've got to be stronger and we, we have to uh, fight back in a much stronger way. I don't think that that changes because of cultural differences. I think it's the real power of China that has changed the situation. Uh, yes, and back here, if you can, don't mind passing the mic back. Hi, um, my name is Esther Han. I'm a Mandarin teacher. I want to talk about the word to brainwash. Um, Mr. Vogel mentioned um, you know, Chinese people, there, there are a certain number of Chinese people travel abroad and a certain number of uh, international students. I recently learned to brainwash was introduced into English from Chinese, like kowtow and gung-ho. So um, personally, I found it very frustrating because I don't think the commoners, the real Chinese people, not the Chinese people here, the elite ones, the commoners, 
they have been brainwashed so thoroughly. I don't think they can, they can be inquisitive. Even the international students here, I often find, you know, um, I often find them, they are here just for the degrees. In the 80s, they are inquisitive of Western civilization. They want to know the West. And that's why there was this uh, Tiananmen massacre. But nowadays, I don't see that they have that humbleness, they, uh, the humility to, uh, to learn from other civilizations. So perhaps I want to, um, my question is, uh, Mr. Vogel, were you being too optimistic about Chinese people's inquisitiveness? Thank you. <clears throat> I think uh, the Chinese are still learning. And uh, I am impressed with the number of Chinese. Take a feel like public health. Uh, I have some friends who advise the Chinese government, and the number of people they send abroad to learn about public health, about high technology. Uh, I think there's tremendous inquisitiveness. I think if you'd gone to China in 1967 and seen those red guards, you would say it's impossible. These people have been brainwashed. There's nothing we can do. Deng Xiaoping comes along in 1978, and it's fundamentally changed. So I don't think they're brainwashed. I mean, they do have public opinion. They do have uh, sentiment. Uh, it's true that a lot of people in China, for example, now think that the Hong Kong demonstrators are being too bold and we should listen to the government. They think that we need those Uyghur camps to uh, keep those people under control. I think those people accept that now, but under a new leader, I, I, I agree with Orville, you know, leaders can make a difference and a whole new perspective. And I think there are a lot of wise Chinese who would be ready to follow a new leader under new conditions. I, I really don't see that they're going to be able to keep the tight control over information that they have now. And it, people aren't that brainwashed. They're, they're not going to stay the way that. Uh, they can be, they know when they have to be quiet and avoid getting in trouble, but that doesn't mean that they've been brainwashed. Thank you. Uh, in the back here on the blue shirt, uh, Tom Moore from the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Um, you seem to keep talking about what China has been doing wrong, what China is not doing right. Um, I think this is in many ways our failure just to recognize that China will become probably the number one power. 1.4 billion people are not going away. There are four times as many of them as there are of us. If we keep our immigration policies as current, we'll probably continue from much faster than we will. But we, when the Soviet Union launched uh, Sputnik, we moved as very quickly as a, as a nation to enter into the space race and, and go forward. Meanwhile, today, we're watching China build up its infrastructure, build up all of these things, letting our education collapse and everything else. Why aren't we saying more to the United States, you know, patient Hillier, or Dr. Hill yourself? I'd like to know really what you feel that, you know, what, why, you know, is this more of the United States just not facing up to its own responsibilities and really stepping up to the plate? Well, I mean, I think there's a huge quotient of that. Uh, alas, we are been deputized as China specialists, so we're not don't have licenses to <laughs> fully be critical of, of our own country. But we do it anyway. 
I mean, I think you're absolutely right. We're defaulting in a thousand different ways. In a certain sense, China is being blamed uh, because we don't have anybody competing in 5G. So we're going to try to push Huawei off the board. Uh, that said, uh, there are other problems in the relationship. So yes, the, you know, the, 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 the primary principle of Confucianism is, you know, turn to yourself. You know, look at your own problems first. And that's something Americans of late have not been very good at. Yes, sir, in the back here. So I have a question. Uh, today, I think we are talking about, about China is China's enemy. A lot of things based on uh, past experience and also we uh, project future based on some speculation, right? So I think let's make a bold speculation. So today we say, because the talk actually is about uh, between China and the U.S., but the people sitting here, actually I think we're talking about the U.S. So let's think about um, China-U.S. China's enemy, let's suppose, the, put that uh, assumption away, but say China is an enemy, and the U.S. have the power to get rid of it. So we wipe China out of, out of the earth, <laughs> and that's that it will solve U.S. problem. So what is the U.S. problem, the biggest challenge? And after China, and will this challenge be removed together? So that's my question, and uh, I hope I can some you know, speculation from our guests on the, on the stage. I, I find it hard to relate to. I mean, China's not going to away, uh, and it's going to remain, and we're going to remain. And uh, if we solved our China problem, as, as Orville said, we still have plenty of American problems to deal with. And since I don't have the license to talk about that, <laughs> I'll, I'll let others talk about that. I mean, listen, if I can just make one comment that's sort of peripheral here. Um, if you look at why Americans, and we all know Americans are poor, weak creatures, but if you look at why Americans are suspicious of China now, you can point to a couple of immediate things if you're trying to figure out, okay, what would be a good move. South China Sea. It was very corrupting of the notion of good Chinese intentions working with international system. Taiwan. I mean, you know, how does that help China to, to, to threaten Taiwan? All of these things have influenced the way Americans perceive Chinese intentions. And I think to roll back some of those, those uh, sort of more aggressive militant postures, which actually don't serve any huge Chinese uh, national interests, except possibly to propitiate certain sort of internal uh, demands. Uh, I think would, would, would help us restore the balance. And I don't think, though, that that's in the cards. So it's with a certain sort of sense of, as I said earlier, a sense of tragedy that I watch this thing, because I don't see the capacity and the flexibility within both sides to, to roll back some of the areas from which I view the threats as emanating. So we have time for probably one or two more. There was one here, and then just in, in the back there. Sorry, thank you. Uh, Mr. Shell, you once wrote that the greatness of Mao was that he was big enough and mean enough to break the cake of custom. Uh, and Professor Vogel, you've delivered a similar statement 
perhaps on a somewhat less uh, lesser level of with respect to Mr. Deng. Uh, where considering the hardening of the cake of custom at this point in China, do you see a leader coming from? Ezra? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, they don't have presidential debates like we do. <laughs> and I think it's very hard to tell. But I do think that the, I, I know a lot of able Chinese officials. Kennedy School at Harvard had a program for about 15 years where Chinese officials came for a period of months and met with our professors and talked about all kinds of issues. And they are smart. They're well-informed. They're a very broad uh, base. I think there are a lot of Chinese leaders. Now, whether they will be given the opportunity and whether together, uh, whether whether she takes a third term or whether he's just recently he's made a comment. Uh, there's a comment that appeared in the press in China that sounds like they want to have the freedom to choose their own leader and to pass on the leadership from one generation to another and that that's what a, a, a really a good uh, democratic country like China should do. Uh, so uh, I think that gives hope that they may be looking for someone else, if not the next term, certainly by the following term. And I think we have to hope that of all the wise experienced leaders. They, they have a very good program for training leaders. You go from the local level up to the provincial level, up to the national level. You preserve, you have very, the people who come to have uh, negotiations with the United States, what an extraordinary breadth, and not only the English language, but the knowledge, the experience that they have. It's almost embarrassing when some of our officials who have so little understanding of China meet with them. And so I think that China has done a quite a good job of training leaders, and we just have to, although we can't guess who it is or where they're going to find them, I think there are the people there with the capacity to provide that leadership. You know, if you had said to me in 1975 when I was up on the mountain in Shanxi province spreading compost on this youth work delegation I was on, that in a matter of a couple years, Deng Xiaoping, who had been consigned to a footnote in history, would be back. Mao would be dead. The Cultural Revolution would be overturned. And Deng Xiaoping would have initiated his, his agenda of reform and opening. I would have thought you were bereft of your senses. There was not a scintilla of evidence to suggest that anything like that could happen, that China had any leader that could ever oppose Mao or Maoism, and yet it happened. So you have to look at China, I think, in a way that it is a country that is constantly reinventing itself. It's still probing and experimenting and casting around for a way to be in the world. Every time where we are in the moment, we forget that history is moving. And we think this is it. This is the freeze point. This is what we're going to get for eternity. And it's, it turns out not to be true. So as a historian, I just urge you to so remember what Ezra said a few minutes ago, that history does change, and it will change. And China has, is a very contradictory place, riddled with all sorts of contention. 
And you don't see it because it doesn't allow you to see it clearly, but it's there. And it will reappear in some other guise. So Dinda gets the last question and the last word. No, 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 the last word, question. okay. I just want to say, I think we all agree that the sweep of history that these brilliant thinkers bring to the stage is absolutely extraordinary. And we are so grateful to all of you. Orville, thank you so much for joining us straight off the plane from China. Ezra, you are still my hero. And thank you so much for everything you shared with us tonight. And Joe, thank you so much for doing such a great job moderating. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out the other podcasts in our network, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, which I must say has just been spectacularly good recently, plus two shows focused on women, New Voices and Ta for Ta, as well as the Middle Earth Podcast on the culture industry in China. And that last but certainly not least, our brand new family member, Strangers in China. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.